Uh, as Anthony mentioned, this is uh, a big week uh, for my wife and I. Uh, I'll be the one traveling and she'll be the one staying home and praying, but we do have a big trip coming up on Wednesday. I'll be flying out uh, under the care of Dan Stoddard, who is going to be my personal chauffeur from Chicago to Brussels on the United flight. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. When you got a friend who's a United pilot, you can pull strings and you can get him on your flight. <laughs> well done, brother. Uh, but anyway, I'll fly out uh, Wednesday to, through Brussels down into Cameroon, West Africa, where my wife and I served for two years, um, and they'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the church that we served in, and I'll get to be a part of that next Sunday, as a matter of fact. Uh, preaching in English and French, uh, three services, twice in English, once in French. I haven't preached in French in about five years or more. Uh, last was in Haiti. It went okay. But uh, as you pray for us, would you pray for my French brain and my tongue to be connected <laughs> somehow? Those of you who speak other languages know what I mean. There, there's days it works and there's days it don't. Uh, I, there's days I have what I call caveman French, which is uh, not the one you want to preach with. So appreciate your, your, your prayer for that. I'll go on from there up to Paris for a few days where we went to language school and our first daughter was born. And then I'll fly over to Albania to be part of a... Uh, uh, missionary gathering. Uh, you, you might know that my wife and I run a team that provides pastoral care to missionaries. And when the missionaries gather anywhere in the world that we care for, we try to be there too. It's a target-rich environment, as we say. There's a lot of folks we can encourage uh, uh, in one place. So I'll be there for the, for the first week of July, and then planning to fly back after that. So about two and a half weeks. You folks, through your generosity, are part of this ministry. You're part of what makes this happen. So I take advantage of the chance to thank you for, uh, for making us part of your outreach around the world. So thank you for being a part of this, and thanks in advance for your prayers. If the last time I was in Cameroon was uh, about 20 years ago, and a gentleman came up to me and, and, and said, uh, the, our Cameroonian friends are very title conscious. He said, Reverend, uh, I want you to know, he's an older guy, probably 20 years older than me, I want you to know that I'm your grandson. And I looked at him kind of oddly, and I said, well, this probably has a story behind it. He said, yes, it does. He was a Cameroonian man. He, he said, you are the spiritual father of Pastor Moise. Who, who we left the, the church in the hands of when we left uh, Cameroon. Pastor Moise was my spiritual father. So I am your spiritual grandson. Isn't that a cool story? I, and I don't often think this quickly on my feet. Usually the phrase is, are you like that? You come, I, I wish I'd said this. It would have been so good if only I'd thought quickly. It, for this one occasion, I, it came to me quickly enough. I was able to say to him, I hope you plan to give me great-grandchildren. <laughs> And he said, you already have them. I thought that was cool. So on this Father's Day, uh, or Grandfather's Day, or Great-Grandfather's Day, I want to wish you all a happy day today. And, and again, I appreciate your prayers as we head into a very significant week uh, for my wife and myself. Also, appreciate your prayers for some conversations we've begun with our agency that, that we serve. Um, we're looking to redefine my role in some fairly significant ways that might cut back on future travel, which uh, wouldn't be a bad thing uh, since this last week I signed up for Medicare. <laughs> I am a card-carrying old person. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a bad thing to dial back some of these uh, international jobs. So we'll see. Uh, conversations will, will take place there, and we'll see where God guides them. But appreciate your prayers for that as well. I, I want to begin today's message with an insult. 
40 years of preaching, I've never done this before, but there's a first time for everything. Okay, here is the insult I want to begin with today. Who do you think you are? That's not an unfamiliar phrase, right? We've heard it, we've used it sometimes maybe, and it always is used in a context where somebody's a little too full of themselves. A little too, we would say, among the um, uh, social security people like I am now, a little too big for their britches, <laughs> okay? Somebody who thinks too highly of themselves and are inserting themselves into conversations where they don't belong. Who do you think you are? And it typically comes across as a, as a smackdown. You, you're out of line, right? And on one level, I get it, but on another, it's kind of sad that such a good question has been turned into, on his head, more of an insulting comment. Because when you think about that phrase by itself, take it out of whatever context of anger and hostility there might be, it's a pretty good question. Who do we think we are? That's not an insignificant issue, as we'll see today as we dig into God's word for a while. It's a really good question because it goes to our sense of our identity. How do I describe myself? How do I define myself? When someone says, who are you? What is my answer? Your answer drives so much of what is true about you. And it drives much of what is true about us. Uh, there's a Christian author named Neil Anderson who tells a story. Uh, don't go to the quote yet, Beth. But, uh, he tells a story uh, how much this matters, this issue of identity. Imagine a high school boy, an athlete, uh, who has all the normal hormonal urges and appetites of a, of a, of a high school boy, a teenager. But he's a, a star point guard on the school basketball team. And they are playing for the state championship. And he's getting all psyched up in the locker room and he's got his jersey on and his warm-up suit and he's walking down the hall to go out to the gym uh, to begin warming up. And out of nowhere pops up the school homecoming queen with a great big chocolate cake. And she says, hey, I thought we might hang out for a while. What do you say? Now, as a high school boy with normal high school boy urges, that would usually be a pretty tempting offer. The homecoming queen and a cake? <laughs> What's not to love, right? Of course, that would be tempting. But in that moment, it's not hard at all for him to say no, right? Why? Because in that moment, he's not just a high school boy who likes girls and likes cake. He's a point guard. He's a basketball player. He's got a game in an hour. And he's got to go get ready for it. His definition of his identity in that moment helps him act the way he should because of how he defined himself. Because of his answer to the question, who do I think I am? Neil Anderson uh, summarizes the lesson of that illustration this way with this quote. He says, the most important belief we possess is a true knowledge of who God is. We'll circle back to that later this morning. The second most important belief is who we are as children of God. Because we cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we perceive ourselves. That's a pretty profound thought, and there's a lot of truth in it, as we're going to see in these next few minutes in Galatians chapter 4. So the question of the day, as is obvious by now, I think, is who do we think we are truly? And happily, the passage that was already read addresses that question, and Paul addresses it in Galatians chapter 4. Now, before we get to that passage and unpack it a little bit, as is always the case, to understand one passage of Scripture, you've got to understand what led into it. 
The fancy word is context. But you always want to look at the neighborhood of the passage. So let's spend a few minutes going back into last week's passage. Let's spend a few minutes talking Torah. Where's, where's my buddy? Okay. <laughs> We're going to talk Torah for a few minutes because the end of chapter 3, as Anthony pointed out last week, des- describes what that whole thing was about in the Old Testament. Well, all those commands and sacrifices and stuff. And, and, and it addressed how the Galatian church should interact with that, should relate to those rules. Because you might remember the big picture of this book that Paul wrote to the churches that were the result of his very first missionary journey. He planted churches, shared the gospel, planted churches, left. He got word later that his ministry had been undermined, as was not unusual, by people who came in behind him, casting doubt on his authority, on who he was, and on the content of his teaching. And these people were saying, no, 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 Paul's going too easy on all these people. You need to be Jewish to be Christian. You need to accept all the rules that we Jews have lived with for centuries. You have to to eat kosher, and you have to be circumcised, and you have to celebrate all the festivals. You can't be a Christian, all you non-Jews, unless you're Jewish first. And, And that went against everything Paul and Barnabas and his team had taught these churches. And Paul got word that they were being swayed by this call to return to their roots. And there's other positive ways you could couch that appeal. But in doing so, they were turning their back on the true gospel, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. And they were going back into a system that had been already superseded by Jesus and by his message. And Paul was dismayed. What is wrong with you people? It's a pretty angry letter. We've already seen some passages where he's verbally spanking these people. And he's talking to them and saying, wake up, you're making a mistake here. To review what we learned in chapter 3 last week, he said, uh, those commands of the law, all those rules, they were your guardians until Christ came. And now that Christ has come and gone and died and risen again and we have the Holy Spirit, we'll see all that in a minute, we are free to do what Abraham did 430 years before Moses received the commandments. Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. He was saved by faith in what God had said. That's the gospel, he says. And now we have more information than Abraham has had. But we true, we also are saved by faith. Uh, those of you who did the Romans class, any Romans class folks in here? Yeah, I hope you've already heard the echoes of Galatians and Romans. There's a lot of connections. We'll see more today. Because the message in Romans is given much more detail and less anger on the part of Paul. But the message is given here in Galatians as well. And what he's saying is, we're no longer under that guardian. It accomplished its task. It showed you how much you need Jesus. What we have as we walk by faith is an upgrade from where many of you grew up, you Galatians. Don't turn your back on the upgrade to go back to something that prepared the way for you to receive what you have now. Don't go backwards, is what he's saying to them. He says the law did its job. It showed how much you need Christ. Turn to him. And he closes chapter 3 by saying, in Christ we are all one. Under that old system, there were walls and barriers everywhere. The biggest one between the people of God, the Israelites, and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. There was a huge wall there. And, And thanks to Jesus, that wall is gone. The dividing wall, it doesn't exist. If you come to Jesus, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. In a world of us's and them's, Everyone who bows the knee to Jesus, we're all us's, is the message at the end of chapter 3. 
In Christ, he ends by saying, we're all Abraham's offspring. And because we're Abraham's offspring by faith in Jesus, we are all heirs. These are themes he's going to revisit in the next few verses. So now we get to chapter 4, the passage that was just read. And we see in this passage, short passage, seven verses, there's a before, and there's an after, and there's a huge turning point. A before, an after, and a turning point. We'll start with the before, of course, in Galatians 4, 1 through 3. He's going to, in these three verses, circle back to some of what we just talked about. He's got, he points out again that until Christ came, we were like immature heirs who live under managers and guardians, as if there had been uh, an inheritance granted to us, but a date was given, an age was set, at which point the inheritor would enter fully into the inheritance. Let's say the, 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 the donor of the inheritance said, I'm not going to give thing to, to my kid until he's 25 years old. So if the dad passes away and the kid is a teenager or younger, even younger, he doesn't have access to all that. He's under the control of stewards or guardians who are making decisions for him. And that technically he owns that inheritance, but he has no access to it. He has no control over it. And he's just, he, he lives just as if he'd never had it in the first place, Paul is saying. And that's, that's what he's saying we used to be like. Maybe an image might, more familiar to us might be some of the pictures of Old Testament kings. Uh, in a dynasty, if the father died, whatever the age of the oldest male heir was at the time becomes technically the king, including if that child was three years old. So the king of Israel is three years old. Obviously, he's not able to function and make decisions and enter fully into everything that a king of Israel has. So he had stewards. He had managers. He was king, but he had no access to the riches that were his. He owns everything, but controls nothing. And Paul was saying, that's what our lives were like before Jesus came. And the status, he says, is ultimately no different from that of a slave. If you can't enjoy and have access to and have control over what has been given you, you might as well not have it, really. You might as well be a slave in that time frame. And Paul says in Romans and Galatians 4, 1 through 3, we, Jew and Gentiles alike, were enslaved to the basics. And he looks back on this season of the, of the spiritual history of, of the people of God as saying, when we were children, this is what was true of us. We were not yet able to enter into that inheritance. And the phrase, when we were children, implies, guess what? We're no longer children. <laughs> we're past that. We've experienced the upgrade. Our status has changed. In fact, he says, our very identity has changed. And the question is worth asking, what happened to so drastically create that change? So we're no longer in that setting where we're under the, the control of guardians and rules and regulations. What makes the difference? And the difference from the before to the after is the turning point we see in Galatians 4, verse 4. Very simple verse, but profound. He says there, when the fullness of time had come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Let's camp in this verse just for a minute because it really gives all the credit to the one who deserves it for the radical change we're about to see. Because we had nothing to do with it. We neither we didn't plan it, we didn't initiate it, we didn't execute it. We are the recipients of it. And it's amazing what God did to make this change happen. 
This passage is one of the famous but God passages that we preachers talk about so much. And there's, there's many of them in, in Scripture. I love, I love them. Some of them are my favorite verses. Genesis 50 is an example. When Joseph is finally, uh, his dad dies and his brothers are before him begging forgiveness. And, 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 and they're afraid he's going to take vengeance on them because when he was young, they'd beaten him up and thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery. And they've, they're come begging, don't please, don't hurt us, basically. And in Genesis 50, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's a but God passage. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite verses. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Acts 3, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he, he's talking to the crowd that had called crucify him. And he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And then maybe my very favorite, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. All of these but God verses make us smile. Because it wasn't but Mike. It wasn't but Dan, but Larry. But Susie, but Jane, it's not but us at all. It's but God. And this is a but God passage. Now, this verse says that the coming of Jesus, the timing of his coming, was not an accident. It says, but God, but in the fullness of time, God sent his son. What does that phrase mean? In the fullness of time. What's that referring to? Well, there's a author named John Stott, who, who, who quoted uh, some of the conditions that were true in the time of Jesus' birth that had never been true up to that point. Let me read what John Stott says about that phrase, the fullness of time. Why is the period of Christ's coming termed the fullness of time? Various factors combined to make it such. For instance, it was the time when Rome had conquered and subdued the known inhabited earth, when Roman roads had been built to facilitate travel and Roman legions had been stationed to guard them. It was also the time when the Greek language and culture had given a certain cohesion to society. At the same time, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people. So the hearts and minds of men everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. Further, it was the time when the law of Moses, the guardian, had done its work of preparing men for Christ, holding them under his tutelage and in his prison, so that they longed ardently for the freedom with which Christ could make them free. That's just a partial list of how God prepared the world for the coming of that baby in Bethlehem. And this verse 4 also points out that not just the when of his coming matter, but the how matters as well. So he was born of a woman, just like us. A completely new way for God to enter the world. Bethlehem wasn't the first time Jesus appeared on earth. We see passages in the Old Testament, uh, passages that refer to something called the angel of the Lord, that says and does and receives worship in ways that convince theologians that wasn't just an angel from the Lord, that the angel of the Lord was a pre-Bethlehem visit of Jesus to our planet. And we see that several times throughout the Old Testament. Jesus could have come as, in the form of an adult. He'd done it before. But in this case, no, he came born of a woman like us. 
He came born under the law to his Jewish readers, like you, like us. He came identifying with us in ways that no angel ever had, that no earlier arrival of Jesus ever provided, a complete and total identification with the people he was coming to save. And again, Paul is saying, if, if this is such a, an amazing moment, and if what Jesus did changed everything the way we're going to see in just a minute is true, if the before and after are so radically different, even to the point of changing identities, again, Paul is saying to the Galatians, why go backwards? Why turn your back on the upgrade and go back to version 1.0 <laughs> with all of its problems and headaches and limitations? Galatians don't do this. And now, the rest of this amazing passage is a celebration of the after. So we've seen the before, the turning point, now we're to the after in verses 5 through 7. Let me read those again because the ideas are so deep. I'll start verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Three salvation principles come screaming out of this passage as we look at the after effect of what Jesus came to do. The words are redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Each of those three words bring a different facet of salvation, a different meaning that we're going to embrace for just a few minutes and talk about how they impact our answer to the question, who do we think we are? Redemption is the language of the slave market. It refers to the purchasing of a slave through a paying of a price for the purpose of freeing that slave and creating a, a new free citizen. I'm reading a, a book on church history right now, and something began back in the 200s as Christians began seeing the evils of slavery in the Roman Empire. And it's a practice that continues to this day in some controversial ways. There's debate over whether we should be acting like this. But anyway, put the debate aside. It has been a practice now for almost 2,000 years that Christians of means or would raise money to develop the means to go to a slave market, buy a slave for the purpose of setting that person free. Yeah, accepting the evils of the system, but this person's not going to be a slave anymore. That's redemption. That's what the word means. Providing freedom where there was none. And the picture for us is we were slaves to sin. We were, we were, in fact, uh, Romans uh, 6, 16 through 18 uses the same terminology. Let me read that for you. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, but God, that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. How's that for a before and after? You're not slaves anymore, Christians. You are free not to sin. You had no choice before. But now you're free not to sin. You have the power. You've been purchased. In your case, the, in our case, the purchase price was the blood of Jesus. Pretty high price. But he paid it willingly to purchase his people out of slavery and to set us free. 
the first word, powerful word here is redemption. The second is adoption. Much more familiar to us than the, the word redemption, most likely. Adoption is a practice that's been going on everywhere for centuries. It's a language of family relationship, providing family where there was none. And this is also a common theme, a common picture. Uh, in fact, as I mentioned, the bridge from Galatians to Romans. Let me read Romans 8, 15 through 16, which uses some of the exact same terminology as this passage does. Romans 8, what some say is the, 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 the pearl of, the, of all the chapters in the Bible. And I'm not getting this page separated. There we go. It says this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He's talking to people who've come to Christ. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's that phrase, a phrase of intimacy, a phrase of relationship. The very phrase Jesus used to address his heavenly Father and made it accessible not just to his disciples, but to us now 2,000 years later by giving us the same spirit that he gave them. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, it says, that we are children of God. So we have redemption, we have adoption, and finally we have inheritance. Obviously, when you become a member of a family, there are some implications for your future. In fact, in Roman adoption, unlike adoption in our day, uh, it, it was often an adoption of adults. More common these days, the ad adoption of a baby. We've had that happen even among us, which is a wonderful picture of salvation. Thank you guys who've done that. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. A, a baby that had no family now has one. But in Roman days, it was, more, it was often done by uh, a rich, wealthy Roman who had no bo heir born to him. And so to keep his name, to keep his fortune intact, and to keep moving his family line forward, he would adopt an heir who was more often than not a young adult. And the purpose was now this person who had maybe nothing before now has an inheritance, stepped into wealth beyond what he'd ever possibly thought of before. And, and many passages of the New Testament talk about the inheritance of Christians. What's ahead of us? What is in our future? What is our Heavenly Father going to give us as inheritance? And we catch glimpses of it. We catch little, little pieces of it here and there. It's probably good we don't know all the details. We'd be all too eager to get there. But there is a passage that says we basically can't imagine. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man what God has prepared for his children. If God were to use common lingo, he would say, what's coming for you, Christian? You have no idea. I can't even show it to you yet. There's a very famous popular Christian song, right? I can only imagine. Uh, that goes through what heaven's going to be like one day. <clears throat> it's beautiful. The images are wonderful. I still would change the title. I can't even imagine. <laughs> we have no idea what the inheritance of the children of God is going to be. Now, there's, there's one other piece of this passage I don't want us to ignore because it's subtle, but it's huge. Right now, okay, we've talked about <clears throat> the after What's true after Jesus came that wasn't true before? Well, the redemption, no longer slaves, we're set free. Secondly, the, the adoption, we have a family we didn't have before. God is our father and the inheritance. All that is, is amazing. But there's one little nuance between verses 6 and 7 that I want us to catch. There's a change from the plural to the singular. And at first glance, you, you'd miss it. 
but it matters. Verse, up through verse 7, up through verse 6, it says, because you are sons. But in verse 7, it changes to, you no longer are a slave, but a son. We could change that to a child of God. The change from plural to singular matters. Because it's one thing, I think, for us to sit here and say, well, this is so cool. Look what God does for his people. Look what is true of Christians, plural. But verse 7 forces us to bring it home. It's one thing to say this is true of Christians, but verse 7 makes us ask the question, is this true of me? Is this true in the singular? Has my identity changed to this point? That's a whole different question, isn't it? And a little different response. But before we, we, I give you an answer to the question, I, I, I want you to imagine this scenario. Because this is either your spiritual story or it can be your spiritual story. Try to put yourself in the place of a slave, if you can. You're chained to other slaves. You're up on stage in a market. You're being auctioned off to the highest bidder. A man in the crowd pays the price and becomes your master, takes you outside, takes a key, removes your chain, and says, I am choosing to set you free. By the way, he says, I'm planning to adopt you. You will now be part of my family. You will be my heir. Oh, and I'm a wealthy man. Everything I have will one day be yours. How's that for a before and after? Like I woke up in the morning, a slave, with no future, no hope, nothing. And then because of the generous plan of a wealthy benefactor, he's redeemed, set free from slavery, he's adopted, he's got a family, and he's got an inheritance coming his way. Friends, spiritually speaking, that either is already true of us, or it could be true of us. If you haven't yet taken the step to bow the knee to Jesus and follow him, this is just a nice theory. And we'd love to help you make that decision and take that step. Come see me or see someone you know who knows Jesus. Let us help you get there. But if you've already done that, then this is your story. This is what Paul said to the Galatians. Why would you turn your back on this amazing process? So I think it's time for us to circle back to the opening question. Who do you think you are? It wouldn't be fair for me to go through this whole message and never propose an answer. So here's my proposed answer. Who do I think I am? I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus. Set free by his death, adopted into his family, waiting to enter fully into my inheritance. Would you read that aloud with me? Think about it as we read it. Let's read it slowly. Who do you think you are? Here we go. I am a child of God by faith in Jesus, set free by his death and adopted into his family, waiting to enter fully into my inheritance. Whew. That's pretty sweet. Did, did it catch in your throat a little bit? Did any part of you say, wait a minute, I know me. I don't deserve this. I did nothing to earn this. You should have seen me this week. Child of God, inheritance, not a slave. I acted like a slave. I didn't act like a worthy child of God. This, no, this is, is it almost too good to be true? If you feel that, you're not alone. That's a fairly common reaction to the grace of God, who pours all of this out on unworthy people, who doesn't wait till we're good enough 
to qualify for this, for this kind of thing. Uh, I read a quote this week from a guy named Marshall Siegel who addressed this sense, we'd almost rather it be up to us somehow. We'd almost rather it be like a salary we've earned, something we've deserved, because there's, there's something satisfying about that. But he says, no, that's, you miss the point if you land there. Here's what he has to say. Our penchant for earning paralyzes us before God's offer of true grace. We don't know how to receive favor without working for it. And so we subtly, or not so subtly, trade away the one true gospel. There's a little Galatians in all of us, maybe. We're all leaning back toward, don't I have to earn it? That's what the Galatians were doing. In some ways, I think we fall in that trap. I do. We trade away the one true gospel because we prefer to work for and serve God as slaves, or at least as employees, not as sons. We don't feel safe letting him do all the work. And earning gives us some semblance of control. We simply can't believe eternal security and everlasting life could be offered as a gift. And yet not only is that exactly how it's offered, that's the only way to receive it, is as a gift. If we think it's up to us, if we think it's a salary, it's a reward for me being good enough, then we mess up the entire process and we become Galatians. Don't be Galatians. Be amazed, stunned, marveling children of a, of a gracious God who pours out on undeserving children all that is in his heart to give us. Because that creates worship. That creates glory to him. That creates dependence on him. Because it's not about us, it's about him. One last quote before we close. And this is from J.I. Packer in a book called Knowing God. One of my all-time favorite books, by the way, and his chapter on adoption changed my mind about the whole process. There are a couple of ways to become part of God's family in Scripture. They overlap. One is called regeneration. It's the new birth. You must be born again. So we're born again into God's family. And, and that's one I always lean toward. I, I understood that better. But in J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, emphasizes adoption in ways I've never considered before and made it come alive. I'm rereading his book right now. But this is a, a chapter, this is a, a, the, the closing of that chapter in Knowing God. He says this, Do I know my real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus and any time when your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life? Yes, certainly. But we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. Let's pray. Lord, we do stand amazed at your goodness and your generosity, your grace, and the story of salvation that you came up with that none of us could have imagined, let alone put into practice. 
Lord, you pour out so much good on undeserving people because you have freed us, declared us righteous, made us your children, and you delight in pouring out your goodness on your kids. Lord, would you help us to grasp that, to live in the light of it, to enjoy it, to never replace it with a cheap version, to never think it depends on us, but that it all is thanks to you. Thank you for this passage that makes that so plain. Help us to live in the light of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.